Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. Chewie. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. Ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am with my OG co-pilot. He is the wonderful... Hey, it's Drew. How are you guys doing today? How's it going, Brandon? It is going quite well because we have uh, have some visitors today joining us all the way from the top secret resistance base. It's the crew from the resistance broadcast, James and Lacey and John. Hey, guys. Hey! Hello. What is going on? <laughs> Clashing welcome, Sabers. Welcome. Thank, thanks for having us. Could, we, we would say you're back, baby, but <laughs> back for the first time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, next, yeah, next time. So if we, if we don't screw this up and we're allowed to come back in the next time, then we can be back, baby. There you go. See? It's, this is just the setup episode for all the good things to come. This is the prelude <laughs> to the chaos. The prequel. Uh, the, pre- the prequel to the chaos, yeah. Oh, no. Exactly. Hey, hey, calm down, Drew. What, Rogue One is a great movie. I'm a big fan of Rogue One. Are there other prequels I should know about? <laughs> Solo. Uh, yeah. oh, yes. Now, no. we, now no. you're talking. Oh, man. Well, it's good to have you guys on today. We're going to get into uh, Mandalorian Season 2 and do our official uh, top three, bottom three look back on that, which is going to be really, really exciting. So just a couple announcements before we get started. Uh, We, of course, have our Return of the Reader fundraiser going on right now to raise money to get more Star Wars books into classrooms across the country, uh, as is our mission. And so if you want to um, support that mission, you can always... Like always, go over to Patreon and you can subscribe that way. But if you want a chance to win some really cool prizes, like some uh, books signed by Star Wars authors, uh, signed Vanessa Marshall prints, uh, some great uh, art prints, things like that, then you can head over to um, our fundraiser at go.rallyup.com slash Clashing Sabers 2021. And that'll be in the show notes. Um, at the time of this recording... After one week of fundraising, we are already at $915, which is just oh, absolutely nice. mind-boggling. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Great. So very excited about that. And uh, trying to get to 1000 and and 100% of all donations goes to buying and shipping books. So um, tax-deductible, all that good stuff. So if you want to help us out with that and also possibly win some really cool prizes, you can head over there. Um, it's really like... I did the math on it, and we're looking at like somewhere between 350 and 500 books going out Dang, to classrooms. That's awesome. awesome! Isn't that crazy? That's yeah, so yeah, great. Really exciting, and uh, we all on here obviously know what it's like to get a new Star Wars book. But just speaking from the teacher perspective, it's really cool to um, be able to open that box with the kids and see them uh, just light up, and and it's really exciting anytime somebody finds their book or their series or whatever it is but when it's star wars it's just like a whole nother level because you know it's just opening up the world uh to them and it's there's no turning back once you get that first star <laughs> wars book that, that connects with you um, so pretty pretty exciting there with that in mind 
let's just kind of talk about uh, what we've been Star Warsing lately. And uh, guys, I'm going to throw it to uh, to the Resistance broadcast. Uh, John, what have you been into lately? What are you Star Warsing right now? Uh, well, right off of the heels of the finale of The Mandalorian, which I know we're going to probably touch on a bit in a little. Um, really excited about the future of Disney+. Plus. Um, I don't, I don't want to say it was a lifeboat for Star Wars, but it's certainly something uh, in the wake of what's been going on in the world with uh, what's going on with theatrical releases and things of that nature. The fact that, that they had the foresight to go to this new service to bring uh, theatrical level uh, productions of these mm. live action mm-hmm. series and the new uh, projects coming down the line for that. I mean, I am so fired up about what's coming. And the, the one that's really the most exciting for me has to be that Kenobi series because the more I think about the potential that they can bring to us with Ewan McGregor, uh, with Deborah Chow directing him, uh, and the cast of characters that can return in that limited series, that thing can really pack a punch, and I'm really excited for what's coming up with that. And, of course, the book of Boba Fett. I, I'm, I'm a uh, Fett demptionist. I wasn't the biggest Boba Fett fan. <laughs> uh, and he he came back in a big way, and I have to thank Robert Rodriguez for that, and Favreau and Filoni, of course. So uh, I'm riding the Boba Fett Fett demption train right now. I love that. We're going to talk a lot about him later on. <laughs> nice. It's really like it's kind of interesting because fans of of animation have been kind of talking about how like the animation has been cinematic in a lot of instances. You look at like Twilight of the Apprentice, you look at like season 4 of Rebels, like there are some parts of the animated series that are they're they're shot, they're produced like a theatrical event and so now to have that like over in live action where they're taking that same kind of approach, but it's actually like you're using what you would use in cinema, you know? Um, yes. And you're, you're reinventing really what cinema is going to look like through television, which is just a crazy thing to think about um, with, with the volume and the balance that that creates between that and practical effects. And cause I know like sometimes I'm watching the, uh, the behind the scenes and I'm like, I did not think that that was, the volume. Like sometimes I'm like, okay, they've got a really plain background, you know, it's all rocks and sand or whatever. You're like, yeah, that was definitely the volume. But like um, parts on on uh, Corvus where Ahsoka was at, I oh, yeah. didn't realize it was the volume and stuff like that. So yeah, that's that's really really cool. Uh, Lacey, what about you? What are you Star Warsing lately? First of all, I love the term Star Warsing. <laughs> it's really fun. Um, I am Star Warsing. Probably, I'm still riding the high of The Mandalorian. It was just so, so good. I didn't think, coming off of season one, I was like, man, I don't know how they're going to top that. And they definitely did with season two. It was a wild ride of like cameos and things that you didn't expect them to do. And then the end, of course, with Luke Skywalker, which growing up, when I was little, he he was my childhood hero. So to see him in his prime again was like such an emotional experience that I didn't expect to have. <laughs> you know, you I cry about a lot of things like Coco, all these different things. But to see Luke on screen, I had such an emotional reaction that I was like, this is what I've always wanted to see. You know, him just like mowing people down. Well, not people, but droids. But the other thing I've been really into is the behind-the-scenes stuff. The gallery uh, special was really, really cool. Now, I have a little bone to pick that they didn't include the Luke Skywalker stuff, but 
just seeing the process of them creating the show and just the love and passion that goes into it from Favreau to Filoni to all the actors and people behind the scenes. Um, it, it was just truly magical, which is such a, you know, kind of cliche term to use, but it's really, really cool to see how they do it. Um, and recently we had Paul who plays Carson Teva on our show and hearing him talk about the behind the scenes stuff is just like made me go back and rewatch the gallery series to kind of see the things that he talked about and just learn. Um, Mm. Because I, I really, really love video production. It's what I went to school for. Um, So anytime I get to hear like how they did this shot or um, how this technology works or what the creative process was, I'm just like totally geeking out about it. (laughs) Do you feel like you got a little shortchanged with the gallery for season two being only the one episode, though? I actually didn't because season one was a lot of that roundtable stuff. And I remember feeling like, man, I wish they kind of did more of the follow along process on set. Uh, okay. Um, so I got what I had requested. <laughs> Not that they Disney was like, yes, Lacey, we're giving you exactly what you asked for. Uh, but for season two, I got more of that actual on set stuff, which I enjoyed. Um, and I didn't feel like I had to have the stretched out eight episodes. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's more of a preference. The only thing that I feel gypped on is the Luke Skywalker stuff because it was building up and I'm like, here it comes. Mm. They're going to talk about, you know, they're going to have Mark back and it's going to be, and it didn't happen and it just ends and it runs the credits and it's like, duh, duh. and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> what just happened? Oh, you need um, seven minutes or so. Come on, guys. I know. And you keep, you you know, you're watching the timer on the bottom and you're like, it's, it, he's coming. Mark's coming. Sad. And they're like, no, he's <laughs> not. I'm holding out hope that, holding out hope that it, uh, you know the way that they titled it it was season two episode one on disney plus mm, so i'm like mm-hmm. maybe there's going to be that drop oh. of like season two episode two or some kind of luke skywalker special because that would be really cool because like lazy i'm with you like luke skywalker especially the return of the jedi luke skywalker yes yeah um i mean the i've talked about it on the show ad nauseum like every episode like the Jabba's away palace the li- no throwing away the lights <laughs> <laughs> Throwing away the lightsaber is like this one of the single most foundational elements in not just my Star Wars fandom, but my own personal like philosophy to life. So to see Luke after that and to see how he had taken that um, or was taking that and trying to find a way to balance that with the, the right. warrior side of the Jedi is really, really, really interesting. So, yeah. I I'm said Jabba's Palace because I always talk about it all the time. That's all I talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Well, I mean, they rebuilt the set, so you know you gotta, you gotta clean up on it. Uh, yeah. James, what about you? What's what's been on your uh, Star Wars docket lately? Um, actually, it, it's kind of interesting, and I don't I don't know if this is considered cheating, but um, we we're recently asked and uh, to participate in the uh, movie trivia schmodown, the Star Wars uh, bracket, oh, if you will. Congratulations. And so, Thanks. because we're all because we're all competitors here, um, we we really need to like brush up on our stuff. So, what is what has been and what will be my my current Star Wars docket is going to be like all of it, <laughs> like all all the movies over and over again, probably uh, soon as we brush up on all the little details and uh, just figure out ways to kind of re- remember all the little things um, so that we can hopefully do well in that tournament. Um, it, it's, 
it's going to be crazy. Um, we, we've we just now started to to branch out and um, meet new people and get involved a little bit with that. Um, and uh, here's hoping that we get drafted. But um, but the, the but at the end of the day, what what have I been Star Warsing? It, it's going to be all of it. <laughs> like we're getting ready <laughs> to get real crazy. Getting into like the minutia and stuff of it, uh, big time. Yeah. yeah, there's a a book um, that I'm working my way through, finding stuff. We're gonna do a trivia challenge on here um, oh, with the fun. different shows against each other, and I got. Uh, it's like a book. It's got like twenty thousand Star Wars yes. questions or something from you know Amazon. Holy cow! Yes, yes. I have it. Oh I bought God. it too. <laughs> so. That's not, she can't play then because that's cheating. She's got. To <laughs> yeah. That's not oh. cool. Which page? Flip, flip, flip. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Did I'm going through it. Eight thousand or. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through it and like trying to find all the ones that are still canon because it's got a lot of legend mm-hmm. stuff in there mm. and just like it's not looking. Fair. That's, that's the only stuff I remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some really, like, how many nostrils does this have and and what height is this? Like, it gets really deep into it, and I'm just like, every time I think I'm, like, ready to do Star Wars trivia, then I find something like this, and I'm like, I know nothing. I know nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) Like, have I even watched these movies? Pretty, yeah, uh, who am funny. I? Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's extremely overwhelming, but it's fun. Like, that's part of the fun of Star Wars is you can, like, look at it through, like, that mythological lens and really get into the themes and the all of that stuff. And then you can also equally get into, like, which pod racer had uh, this kind of engine on it and, and whatnot. So, yeah, good stuff. Uh, Drew, you got any, uh, I know you, you were getting into High Republic. You got any other updates on what you've been doing lately? Yeah, I finished, um, the book. Which one is the book? Um, uh, it's the one, one with pages. <laughs> Light, Light of the Jedi, I think? Yes, that is the correct one. Um, guys, it's really good. Um, is anybody else reading it or? I am 230 Randy, pages yet, into it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, James, I is, read- James is our book guy. Yeah, I'm the okay. one who reads the books. Um, that that would have been a good answer. What have I been Star Warsing lately? Yeah, the High Republic <laughs> stuff. I was yeah. wondering why you didn't say that. Me too. Yeah. I was very because shocked. because I'm I, well. I mean, I guess I'm reading th- another one of the books, but it, it's it's not out yet. But the thing is, like, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. What am I doing? What did I do today? You know, that's that was uh, I was at. Now I've I'm finished those. We did our reviews. Um, those are up on our channel. You know, but. Um, what, what, have, what am I doing lately? I'm like, oh, lately, I, uh, you know, this has been on my mind. But, but yeah, the I'm so proud I can say we got a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Light of the Jedi is great. Yeah, and Test of Courage is good too. Um, it's not as adult. I, I, it sounds weird to say, but like, it's not meant for us. It, it is is more of a young reader. But yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you are you allowed to talk about the Claudia Gray book at all yet? No, that's I'm still I'm that's the one I'm in Fair the middle enough. of. All right, we will we will pretend it doesn't even exist. Uh, no, <laughs> it's I, I think it's good. It's not perfect, but I think it does contain my favorite written paragraph in any Star Wars book I have ever read. Wow, um, which is weird because I don't think I would have ever said that about anything. Um, especially not something that's supposed to kick off an entire expanded universe like this is was doing. But sure. there's a paragraph in I, I wrote down the chapter in the it, on chapter 17 on page 106. There's a paragraph, and I don't think this will spoil anything. 
So if it does, if you're really, really protective about that, give me 15 seconds. Go forward 15 seconds and you'll be fine. Go. There's a paragraph that talks about how each of the Jedi Masters experience the Force. One mm-hmm. character hears it as a song. One experiences it as a deep, endless ocean. And it does that for five or six different people. And the way it's done is just this amazing... Um, poetic way of explaining something that has no real words to it. It's uh, equal to the scene in The Last Jedi where Rey um, feels the force through her and Luke explains it and she senses all the moments of balance, of life and death, of warmth and cold, mm-hmm. of light. And, it's just uh, the, what that was in the theater, this is in a book. And for that, I, I am very grateful that I actually sat down and read it instead of... I know a lot of people have been enjoying it through the audio, audio version, but I feel like if you don't have the chance to go back and reread that paragraph and sit and think about it for a while, you're going to be missing out on some of it. So get the book if you can. Uh, I'm a big fan of it. But I think we're going to talk about more of that on another day, aren't we, Brandon? Yeah, we will definitely be covering that on uh, Don't Burn the Sacred Text. And I, I, haven't I love even... that meme so much when people use that for things. The sacred text. The sacred text. Um, this, I mean, this might become a sacred text. I mean, it's it's up there in terms of like what it does for the lore and stuff like that. And I mean, it's we really good. would expect nothing it's less not from Charles Sewell. But it, 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 we'll, we'll get into that debate. Save it. Hashtag I'm not it. sure. <laughs> it's it's up there. It's but. You know, I just finished Lost Stars like what a month or two ago oh, now. Oh yeah, that's true. And I don't know that anything is better than that yet in the new canon. So this will this might give it a run for its money, but it's not a real fair fight. Yeah, I mean, really, Claudia Gray kind of just beats anybody. Just you don't not, even have to read the, the books; you can just assume. <laughs> that's that's not really fair. <laughs> it's it's not fair to it. It's like you know. Claudia Gray is the gold standard right now as far as Star Wars novel writers. I think, I don't want to say universally, because everyone has their own opinions, of course, but um, the majority of people would say that. But it's like, if you read her book and follow it up with anything else, it's like when Jimi Hendrix opened up for the monkeys. It's like, how how do you take the stage (laughs) after Jimi Hendrix plays and you're the monkeys and you're a fake band? It's just like, it's it's hard to do that. So you got to, I guess, try to look at it from that perspective. So let's be clear. You think that Charles Sewell is a fake Star Wars writer. Got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, isolate, isolate that quote, and then uh, I'll get my online clout that I've been looking for all these years. <laughs> we'll put it out on Twitter. And Every time yeah. I think of, uh, I hear Claudia Gray, I just think about Star Wars Celebration in 2019, where we walked by her, and I stopped her, and I was like, when are we getting a Ben Solo book? And she was like, what? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and then, oh, and then she just walked away, and then that was it. That's my mm-hmm. experience with Claudia. Yeah. And then it turned out it was just some random lady with purple hair. It wasn't even Claudia Gray. <laughs> Jerk. It, that is not true. <laughs> the, Let's the not spread thing. that around. <laughs> the crazy thing about these authors is they're also like, they are such like great people. Like we, we, had, we were fortunate enough to talk with Claudia Gray uh, about a year or two ago. And like her passion for Star Wars is palpable, and like you get that with mm-hmm. all of these authors um, that are a part of the High Republic, and 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 all of the creators. Uh, you know, Arya, one of the artists for the High Republic comic, uh, came on uh, with Zach and Sam, and you could like you could feel the uh, the passion he had for it. So it's good knowing that um, you know these things that they're putting a lot of uh, manpower and effort behind, and a lot of. Uh, time and products and media and all of that stuff is being handled by people who 
kind of revere the stuff and want to do what's best for it and not yeah, just people care. who yeah. want to bring in their own thing and do Star Wars just their way. They want to do Star Wars their way in a Star Wars way, which is um, not an easy balance to, to manage, but it's something that I think the the five people involved um, leading that group are, are doing a really good job of. But we'll talk about that more later on as more and more of those books come out and uh, get into the comics and everything like that. But we have got to get into Mando Season 2 because there's so much good stuff to talk about. So we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to talk about Mandalorian Season 2. Ahsoka Tano! Bo-Katan sent me. We need to talk. I hope it's about him. And we are back, baby. Had to throw that in there again. (laughs) 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 No, I'm like, like 90s wrestling mankind just stealing everybody else's catchphrases. (laughs) I don't understand that reference. Right here in Star Wars podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. Somebody finally gets me. All right. We are going to be talking Mandalorian season two, getting into our top three, bottom three. And if you are new to the show and have not gone with uh, this format with us, basically what we're going to do is go through our bottom three, which are things that didn't quite work for us. We thought uh, we're not the best choice for the story. Uh, things we would change, critique, all of those kind of things, uh, starting with number three and going to number one, so three being the least egregious and one being the worst. And then we will get into the good stuff, which uh, is probably going to be the bulk of this conversation because season two is so good, and that's going to be our top three, which is uh, your basic three to number one, your best one. So with that in mind, Drew, Yeah. let's start it off <laughs> number three, bottom number okay. three. All right, again, these are the things that are the most offensive in something that is absolutely fantastic. This, is very, this was difficult to find kind of things to not criticize, but to critique and say, could we have done this a little differently? Um, is it possible there's room for improvement? So having said that, let's go visit Ahsoka. Um, Oh, I know, I know. You shut <laughs> your mouth, <laughs> sir. You really Listen. went for it. <laughs> but but when you when you hear it, you'll understand. It's it's the it's the most uh, nits to pick of you could possibly get. So mm-hmm. nits I, I'm trying to dance around <laughs> this kind of stuff because I don't want people to hate me. Well, actually, that's not. <laughs> so. Before I actually get to the the number three, I have to give you the comparison of what worked. The way in which this worked. When we got the return of Boba Fett in the later episode, of, in the tragedy, something that they did with his his character action was they had these great musical stings, like this, this 80s electric guitar that would kind of rock out every time he did something monumental, like when he shoots the rocket and it hits the one Imperial transport, knocks it into the other one, and he turns and looks at the camera, and you can hear him basically say, wasn't that amazing? There's great musical stings in that character because the way it it uh, it kind of really puts a musical setting to the characteristics of the guy himself. He's wild. He's a little out of control. He's dangerous, but man, is it a lot of fun to watch. During the Ahsoka episode, there is a similar musical sting for her character, but it does not land the same for me. Um, they're trying, and I went back and rewatched most of that episode even today just to make sure I wasn't entirely insane. Maybe just a little bit, because they're, it's used in a similar way 
to evoke a similar emotion, but I don't know that it's entirely appropriate for the character. Uh, Ahsoka's not wild and out of control. She's not terrifying, and she's not dangerous. Well, she's a dangerous person, but she's not a dangerous character, if that makes sense. Um, she's dangerous to her enemies, but not to the audience. The audience wants to know that she's still a Jedi, even though she would never call herself that again. She's perhaps maybe the most true to the uh, original ideal of a Jedi Knight. You know, she has this honor of serving, of, of fighting for the good and fighting down the evil. But the way the musical stings kind of kick in with that undercuts that a little bit. And I can't tell if that's supposed to be when you look at it from who she's attacking and their perspective, and that's what they're trying to instill and say, yes, you might like this character, you might know who she is, and you might have seen her when she was a kid, but that's not who she is anymore. But I don't think it's a very strong choice. I feel like if they wanted something to wanted to use something similar, maybe just something different that wasn't so heavily distorted or wasn't that metal on metal string sounds, I feel like that needed a second pass. Um, and that's kind of, again, this is number three, so this is kind of the nits I'm looking to pick at this kind of stuff. Does that sound crazy to anybody? I wouldn't say it sounds crazy. I think um, I always try to put things into some sort of perspective, especially for a character that's been, uh, we've seen since... For, for decades in terms of her life. Um, and everything we've seen her in has been backed by Kevin Kiner for the most part in terms of musically. And now we enter, you know, Mandalorian where we're, it's, we're blindsided by this whole different sound of star Wars sonically mm-hmm. and it's different for everything. So even the Luke scene, it, they used the force theme a little bit, but it was just like it felt different. It felt I wouldn't say musically it felt fan film music, but it didn't you know, you're expecting to hear John Williams through and through when you see Luke Skywalker with the green lightsaber. Uh, so that was a little different, even though I loved it. So then I try to apply that to the Ahsoka thing, and I kind of agree with your point there, but I think it's because we're so used to putting on that that uh those headphones, uh so to speak, and hearing the Kevin Kiner backing music from the Clone Wars film all the way through the end of the Clone Wars and Rebels and so on, that it's almost a little jarring to hear her in action with someone else uh supporting her um with the uh composition. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Especially when when Luke is coming down the hallway, um taking out those dark troopers left and right, we're we're not really supposed to know yet a hundred percent who it is the, sh- the ship right. has not yet revealed the character so in in universe no one on that ship knows who it is and so we're put into the same kind of emotional state that they are and and the music does that and the music's kind of it's still a little heroic it's a little bit more orchestral which is which is i think fitting for that character and, and the only issue i have really with this is so the, the stingers are kind of oddly placed where it's used especially if you remember before she goes to do the final you know, hand-to-hand combat sequence where she's fighting the the minions inside the little town itself. And there's a shot where, like, two guys, two of the bad guys are looking at the screen and she pops up from behind them and ignites her lightsabers horizontally and it hits it there like, Wah! Mm-hmm. it's like, I'm not sure we need that because visually we're getting it already. And I would just, sometimes I wonder if it's just too much. I can see that. I think maybe there, uh, you could look at it through the lens of like, this is an Ahsoka who is still learning to handle her, I guess her aggression in terms of like her reaction to finding out that 
Vader is actually Anakin and Anakin is Vader and everything that happened on Malachor, you know? And so maybe the mm. the music is meant to set you on edge because it's like, here's this character that you know and you love, but she's not, at this stage, she's not the Ahsoka we revere, you know? Like, there's there's like the actual Ahsoka who has gone through all the trouble and the trials and, and everything that we go through in the Clone Wars. And then there's also this other version of Ahsoka that fans have built up. I'm literally sitting in a room filled with Ahsoka, so I'm a part of the problem. Um, but, <laughs> but like where she's almost become like holy, where we don't ever look at her flaws. Um, and so we just expect her to be just this I guess, knight in shining armor, for lack of a better term, hero, whereas that's not where she's at right here. She's still dealing with a lot of trauma here, and maybe that is supposed to set us on edge a little bit there. Perhaps. Maybe. Could maybe. be. Could be. All right. Um, so to, to kind of keep things easy and keep things moving, the guys from Resistance Broadcasts are going to uh, combine their list together. So, guys, I'm going to throw it over to you and whoever wants to take your number three. All right. Um, yeah, mine, uh, we each kind of have our pick. So that's how we're doing this here. Um, mine mm-hmm. is uh, Moff Gideon, um, a character who I've been saying um, giddy for Gideon uh, because they've been peppering <laughs> him in throughout this series and not giving us a f- like the full meal. Um, and, you know, they, they kick him in with uh, that monologue he does uh, at the end of season one, which was chilling, uh, very Hannibal Lecter. And then they, they slowly ease him in in this season, and you're wondering when the big moments are going to come. And then he finally gets into combat with the Mandalorian. But then at the end of the rescue, he tries to kill himself. And um, that suicide attempt really bothered me because oh, it, really? it, yeah, because it immediately took the menace away from him as a character for me. It turned him into a coward, uh, um, like, a, like a Hitler sort of thing, you know, where, you know, as far as the history books say, he, he shot himself. And it's just, he, he's a coward, uh, ultimately. And with Moff Gideon, I wanted him to be, like, the new Palpatine for this purpose. And I'm going to go down in a, in a blaze of glory. I'm not going to try to take the easy way out. So seeing Moff Gideon try to blast himself because he couldn't deal with the ramifications of being caught immediately took away his menace to me. And for some reason that bothered me, especially with an actor as powerful as Giancarlo Esposito, what we know he can be as a subdued and subtle, but completely terrifying villain. Interesting. See, that, uh, that's an interesting read on that scene because if at the end of the third, uh, is it the third episode with the Bo- when Bo-Katan comes in? And they mm-hmm. try and take yeah, over that yeah, one yeah. cruiser. Because yeah. when they have that Imperial captain in custody, he does not exactly the same thing, but he breaks the thing in his tooth, like the yeah. Star Wars version of a cyanide pill. Right. Because he's afraid of, of Moff Gideon himself. So I was reading that last sequence of even Moff Gideon is afraid of his superiors. That's like, what I don't like. I, 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 and I'll, and I'll, aggressive. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. Because movie, um, not movie. TV series do this a lot, where it's like, here's your hero, here's your supporting cast, here's your main villain, here's the supporting villains, and they go through a whole season, maybe two seasons, where the, the villain's the guy, and then oftentimes they either kill the villain or something happens where he's not around anymore, and then they're like, oh, but guess what? 
he actually had someone bigger and better than him this whole time that we're just writing in now. And I know Favreau and Filoni probably had a plan from the get-go, but it still comes off that way, that old TV trope. Like, I remember that show, The Following, with Kevin Bacon. And they're like, it's all about this guy, Joe, and he's this evil guy. And like, oh my God, he has all these followers. And they're like, nope, guess what? He was just a pawn, a spoke in the wheel. And I just don't like when shows do that. So, I don't know, it just kind of took away the 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 the, the fear that I felt from Moff Gideon. Um, it was just like, that's how he was just going to go out after all this. I don't know, after two seasons of this buildup and we didn't really get the full payoff yet. Um, now, that can be uh, rectified by what they do going forward. And I trust, I am a big Favreau guy. So I completely trust what he does and what Filoni brings to the table. So I'm sure they will rectify that. But as I stand here today, season two, that <laughs> is what I have a problem with. Well, you stand in your truth, my friend. You do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's something to say, though, that like he does it when he realizes that Luke Skywalker is coming, that he realizes a Jedi is coming. And being basically the top or one of the top Imperials at the time, my headcanon is like that he knows the story of the Jedi and what Jedi can do. And he knows basically he doesn't have a shot of... Uh, not just defeating Luke Skywalker, because obviously, but he doesn't have a chance of protecting the secrets of the uh, the sure, Empire sure. and the First Order and stuff. So yeah. I don't know if we necessarily have enough text to back that up, um, and maybe we'll get more of that of like what he knows going <laughs> forward. But um, from season one, do, kind of was it confirmed that Gideon was part of the ISB? Uh, yes. Yeah, he so was part of the would ISB. would he be aware of Luke? Luke and Vader and Palpatine's confrontation on the Death Star five years prior. So would he have recognized and known the trouble he was about to be in? Um, as far as I can tell through everything, Bloodline was very specific that the only people that really knew what happened on the Death Star was Luke, Han, and Leia. Um, so I don't know if that story about you know Vader turning and all of that stuff, but from what Ray says about Luke Skywalker in Force Awakens about I thought he was a myth, you, you get the impression, and then in Last Jedi she talks about how he saved Vader, you get the impression that that story's out there, right? Like, it it's out there in a way, but it's probably not the version that we've seen, yeah. you know? So I wonder, like, it's, where that story's at at this point. It's just, it, it's funny because, like, when you put it that way, where he's like, oh, no, it's Luke Skywalker, I just think of... You know, Newt Gunray and Rune Haiko as like Qui Gon's coming through. Like, imagine he's just this cool, <laughs> badass villain, and then Luke shows up and his voice changes and he's like, but he's still coming through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That would no. definitely kill the character. Um, <laughs> he pulls this mask off and it's Nemoidian underneath there. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, that would make yeah, the no, character. No need Let's to shoot yourself. You just committed suicide with that voice change. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So I, mine kind of uh, touches on, on something similar there in the whole idea of the spokes on the wheel. And uh, it's, it's pickled Snokes in, uh, in episode <laughs> or chapter 12, The Siege. And here's the thing. Like, Drew, Drew mentioned this. Like, this is a really good season. So picking any negative things about the season... Um, that was just like full of really solid, clear storytelling with great metaphor and meaning and everything is really, it's really hard. It took me actually quite a while to, to come up with this list, but this weird moment with, with maybe Snoke in these t little tubes gets 
put in here, and I honestly, it just it threw me off because you you get it, but then you get nothing really to to back it up. It's never it's not brought back up in the season again, um, and and I honestly think that this is one of those situations where it's just collateral damage from uh, Rise of Skywalker and the sequels, not really knowing what Snoke was. And uh, JJ, you know, he explains it off to the side in Rise of Skywalker, but when you have this one large universe, the actions in one project are going to affect the storytelling and, and, and actions that happen in another product. And I think that's really prevalent here. Uh, it, it's you get so much information um, in that scene and so much about the, the characters and you get Mando realizing that Moff Gideon is still out there and that his son is in danger and all of this great powerful stuff. And then there's maybe Snoke just sitting there and it's like, I, I would have either liked more <laughs> detail there or something to, to make that leap of like, this is foreshadowing the First Order a little more or... They are trying to rebuild Palpatine. Like, the music is, like, they bring in the Snoke-Palpatine, one of those themes in there, but it's, like, very, very subtle, and it's a dark scene, and it's hard to see. And I, just overall, that moment just really didn't work for me um, as it's presented in the season. Now, if they bring it all back together, and they, and they you know, season three or season four or whatever, and we get more of it and, and you add context to it, then I will gladly eat my words. I will salt and pepper them up and like <laughs> gladly eat my words because I want to be, I want to be wrong about this because there, there is a lot of potential there, but right now I just don't think um, in the larger story of season two that it works. I totally agree with that. I felt that that moment was kind of, when it happened, you were like, oh, my gosh, they're going to explain so much. And then they didn't. And you were like, oh, but what? Yeah. <laughs> so I totally feel the same way. And again, just like you, I hope that they obviously are going to go into it with three and four. But uh, I just, I don't know. I've, I left that scene being like, so was it? Wasn't it? Where did we? I know it was the big reveal of they needed Grogu's blood and that Gideon was still around. But other than that, we didn't really learn much. Yeah, and, and is it the natural? Is there a natural leap from like they need his blood to they're creating right. Snoke to they're creating Palpatine? I don't right. know if that's something that the people that are not looking at it frame by frame and analyzing the music and analyzing like all of this stuff that we do because we're obsessive, you know, are they <laughs> getting that? So I'll actually be really interested to see. My wife hasn't sat down and watched season two yet, so I'll be interested to see her her reaction after that because she. I mean, she's seen the movies. She goes with me when they come out. So she's seen them all like one time. Is mm -hmm. she going to be able to make that connection to, oh, hey, is that that guy? Um, right. <laughs> all right. Drew, take your number two. Okay. Oh, boy. I've got a couple here, and I need to make a f uh, on the fly decision on which is my m the most egregious. Uh, uh, okay. I've got to stick in the Ahsoka episode for number two. Dude, we are not going to be friends after this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to lose friends if you don't have any. Um, Ayo, <laughs> I I went back and watched it because one of the things that stuck out the first time the that the episode aired, um, I remember the lightsaber fight against the Beskar spear scene being a little weird to me, and I went back and rewatched it, and I was counting edit cuts. I was counting how many times the camera shot changed and. 
I was starting to pick up that there's only one moment. This again, the 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 nits you have to look for to pick out of this season is there. This is how deep I had to go look. There's only one continue contiguous shot where Ahsoka makes four parries in a row and the camera doesn't cut away. You hear a lot of of back and forth fighting, especially when uh, Dejaren is talking to the guy whose name I can't remember outside when the two of them are having their conversation, it sounds like it's back and forth cont- like constantly. But when you actually watch the two of them fight, it doesn't line up. And there's one instance. I don't know if you guys remember this, this specific, there's a point where Ahsoka does kind of like a front flip to get out of a lock that she's in. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are 13 cuts in about seven seconds. And that is some really fast editing. And I had to ask myself why they're having to do this kind of thing. And I wonder if there is some challenge in the choreography there. And I really should have had this, this pulled up beforehand. But I had the, um, the, uh, the actress's name, Diana Lee Inosanto, is, is playing the, the matriarch, the matron. Yep. And she, she's been in action movies since like the 90s. She's one of the top martial artists in her field. And so I really feel like perhaps Rosario Dawson, as, as much training as she put into it, could have used another week or two because there's so much that seems to be cutting around her. Whereas in Asanto's character, we get to see all that she wants to do and all her little movements and everything are very well put together. And I don't think it was a very fair fight, which is, is tough because you want those things to be equal because you, you want the two characters to feel like they don't know how this is going to end and you don't really know what's going to So you have to be paying attention and looking at all these things. And especially when you consider all the Kurosawa influences throughout the rest of the film, those fights don't cut away. Those things are, were practiced and practiced until they could do two, three minutes worth of combat on screen. And I feel like there are moments in that fight that are taken away. They, they don't have that power they want to have, they should have, because of they could have just used a couple more weeks of practice. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, also, I've seen some movies where Rosario Dawson gets physical, um, Sin City, Death Proof. Daredevil. Um, Daredevil, and I love Death Proof. A lot of people don't like that movie. I absolutely love that movie. Um, she uh, does like roundhouse kicks and stuff, and so. <laughs> but I don't know, like you know, in terms of like using a lightsaber, maybe it was just like. And again, you go back to that animated thing with Ahsoka, and you could do so many things with an animated character that in live action, yeah. maybe she looks slow, and she, she's like running on the rooftops. It's not the way you would expect Ahsoka to be jumping around. So I, I put that element in it too. But I see your point there. Yeah, I think they also talk about it on gallery, too. They have a whole section where the stunt guys are talking about her and how uh, she's doing a really good job and stuff, but then they show the footage where they're walking her through step by step. So it might be the combination of the double lightsaber, the two lightsabers, and not one, yeah, it's but two ex- lightsabers ex- and stuff. It is exceedingly complicated, and I'm not saying how dare Rosario Dawson, you know, accomplished <laughs> A-list actress, not know how to fight with you know dual sabers and, and then, then go to a left-handed reverse-bladed situation. Like, sure. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to try, but there ain't no way I could ever do anything close to that. I would, I wouldn't even step in front of a camera. You got to be kidding me. Right. So it's not like <laughs> I'm not. I don't want it to come off like she's a terrible choice. She never should have been cast, and she's a horrible human being. I, I think that this is this moment needed a well 
I'm not sure that it needed to have the kind of weight and fight and combat that we all wanted to have. It could have soared when it was doing while it was just doing a good job as it is. Like it works the way it is. There's nothing egregious. I have one egregious thing we'll talk about in a few minutes, but this one it at least made sense. The fight makes sense. You don't get like a cut or an edit and be like, wait a minute, I thought they were on the other side or, you know, the lightsaber switched hands. You don't have any problems like that. So it's pretty solid, but I can definitely see like in the editing bay, somebody was like, all right, how do I make this work? (laughs) Like it took a lot of work and I think they did a good job, but if they had a, a couple more weeks of practice and, Something else. I'm not sure what it, there is that's missing there. I think this would have soared. This could have been one of the top fights in, in all of Star Wars. I think the I think the transition from animated to live action is also particularly difficult for Ahsoka because her fighting style was created in animation. You know, whereas with, like with Anakin and, and Obi Wan and uh, we haven't had an animated Luke yet, but with those kind of characters, we had the you know the the real live action actors doing it first and the you know the the cartoons were based off of that where it's the reverse for ahsoka so you can do these unnatural things like fighting with reverse grip on two lightsabers which is not something that any martial artist would ever even attempt to do and it's why they don't really try to do it in this episode is to have her using the reverse grip very often because it's not a natural way to to fight. And so I think that there is there there's something that's lost in translation maybe there of like how do we adapt her her fighting style um this way especially when you want to both introduce her to new people but also satisfy people like me who are looking at like why is she not having a reverse grip and things like that. So it's a, it's a weird balance to find. I agree, like, to a point, because in, even in, like, the final season of Clone Wars Season 7, when they have the Ahsoka and Maul fight, that was mo-capped. So they had, you know, Ray Park, and I cannot remember the stunt actress who came in to do Ahsoka's fights, but they had it all mapped out on the floor, and they did it. So it can be done, because that's probably one of the most impressive sword fights in all of the Clone Wars series. So... It, it certainly can be done, but I think maybe there's a translation issue of, of when it, you have to have a live action. But man, use your stunt people. Like it's okay to let them do it. Maybe maybe that would have been something to try. Is maybe have less shots of oh, let's make sure we have Rosario's face on screen swinging lightsabers left and right, and let the let the stunt let the stunt guys do it. We can put faces on people. Clearly, we can put faces on people. It <laughs> It'll be interesting to see with the Ahsoka series, like how that how that evolves. But yeah, I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. So, Resistance broadcast, you guys, what do you got for number, number two? two? Number two. Number two is my pick, and I kind of find this a little funny because I feel like the the picks so far have been like very storytelling wise, and mine's literally like a nerdy nitpick. So, like, I think about it like uh, Harry Potter with how Harry's hair changes every movie. When in the first (laughs) book they say that he can't cut his hair because it just grows back, yet his Mm -hmm. hair changes. Like, that's the kind of nitpick this is. So, my nitpick, my, like, not thing I didn't like, number two, would be uh, Mando leaving behind the jetpack in the Robert Rodriguez episode. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what happened there. And... I know a lot of people felt this way, too, because I remember posting on Twitter, like, a funny picture of a cat being like, I'm up at 3 a.m. wondering what happened to the jetpack. 
because he had it. He took it off for Boba Fett, which is fine. But then we never saw it again. And so the Razor Crest gets blown up. Everything he knows is gone. But yet the jetpack is still there. So what happened to the jetpack? And I guess that's my net, my nitpick because it just There's seems no like a very... With it at the end of that episode? I don't remember one. And I watched the episode a bunch of times. I, I don't know. It's driving me nuts because it's like, then you don't see him with it again. And at the end, when Grogu is getting taken, you'd be like, okay, we'll use the jetpack. And he's like, nah, I'm just going to stand here and stare. And you're like, but you have a jetpack. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, that thing, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And they made such a big deal about him getting it in season one. Yes, you getting know? the jetpack. So, mm-hmm. I, I get that. I get that. He used yeah. it in the beginning to fly to the whole space. So you're like, okay, but where is it? <laughs> and he kills a guy with it. I know. He runs, he runs back up the hill. And he gets stuck at the force field a couple times, right? Yes, yeah. but he has the jetpack off at this point because Boba because, Fett made him right. take it off. Because then he has to, he comes back down the hill to save Fennec, and the two of them battle it out for a while. And then they hoof it back up. They go back up. Yeah, so they he, run back up. But he's got the jetpack in later episodes too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> to me, it felt I like the writer, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is Favreau, was just like, I need him to get rid of the jetpack, so I'm just going to have him put it down. That's right. like, yeah, right. you're right. He can't go and fly and, and fight them in the air, because that would yeah. be too cool to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, uh, I'll give my number two, because it's even more of a nitpick, so it'll make yours seem like a much bigger deal. Uh, <laughs> mine is... The name the M count. Oh no! Interesting. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I hate it too. <laughs> I want Lucasfilm to grow a pair and call them midi chlorians. They're midi chlorians. No, no. I was <laughs> so it. glad they did That's not it. say that. I M count is is silly. There is a name for them, and they are midi chlorians. And you should just say it. And when Drew gets mad about it and yells about it on Twitter, you can just mute him. Like that's that's how it works. <laughs> it's fine. So that wow. wait, do you mean do you mean M word him? Oh, oh. Hey. <laughs> all, right, all, right, all right, I see that. We don't use that kind of language on here, sir. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, really, I just it would have been really cool for them to use midichlorians, and I feel like they. Uh, just kind of catered to Reddit on that one, and that bugs me. But it's not really a big deal. So, Drew, <laughs> wow, what do you got for your for your okay. top one other than the jetpack? That that's gonna bother <laughs> me. I'm gonna go watch that episode tonight. And be like, all right, every frame, I'm gonna watch where that jetpack is. <laughs> I the the most. Oh boy, here we go. I'm gonna leave the Ahsoka episode. How's that? We're all gonna take. It. I was gonna say, are you about hey, to look say at this so? <laughs> I hate those white lightsabers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> the okay, we have to fast forward to the finale. I think the attack on the ship. Once everybody gets on board the ship, the the quality of the episode dips up until you get to the point where uh, did, where they bring back where Din Djarin encounters Moff Gideon in Yoda's cell. That assault on the ship, there are good moments in there, but there are some doozies as well. Um, and this is the one thing that really bothered me. There's a moment where Cara Dune comes around a corner 
and just unloads with her like her light repeating blaster and she shoots like 20 30 shots off the camera cuts and you see at the other end of the hall two stormtroopers come around the corner and they are taken down by fennec immediately which means cara dune shot 20 30 shots at an empty hallway there's nobody <laughs> on the ground there's nothing happening and then her gun gets jammed <laughs> I had to explain. I have I have a nine year old and a seven year old boy who watch these shows, who would watch these episodes with me when they came out. And she and <laughs> my nine year old goes, "If it shoots light, how does a gun get jammed?" <laughs> I had some real questions with that. Even he was like, "I don't get it. How could it jam?" And I was like, "Don't worry about it. It's a TV show." And I was like, in the back of my mind, going, "I don't know. I just don't understand what's happening." Now, in fairness. There are some amazing moments in there. Like when Fennec is walking through the cargo bay and, and she says, cover me. And then she just kind of waltzes through all on her own. No one's covering her. But she like has these amazing shots. She, like She bends down and like shoots a stormtrooper in the head between two cargo crates. It's amazing stuff. But there's so mm-hmm. many of like, what are they doing? Like the editing in this has gone a little bit wonky. Sparks are shooting off weird. Here's kind of where I, I want to land on. Peyton Reed is a good director. I think he did an excellent job with the second episode of the season. I think the second episode is absolutely wonderful. Um, I'm probably one of three people on the planet who enjoyed the Passenger episode. That's fine. I'm not sure he's the strongest action director they could have gotten for this thing. Um, he doesn't have a lot of action films in his in his filmography. He's he's brought us such action titles as Bring It On and Down with Me, hey, starring hey. Ian McGregor. Watch okay. it. <laughs> Those tell me about the gun battles and bring it on then because that's what I'm looking for. You don't for. remember that? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that big scene with Renee Zellweger where they're just way, way, you know, weighing lace to laying waste to people. It's just not <laughs> not my thing. Now he did the two Ant-Man movies, which are a lot of fun, but I don't remember any set piece action sequences from either one of those things either. So, I think that that's kind of where these, this, the finale, the only moment that's it, its weakest moment is kind of these, the, the assault on the ship. First part of the episode is great. The back half of the episode is probably the best 20 minutes we've seen in Star Wars since, I don't know, Empire Strikes Back, in my opinion. It's so good. And it's mm-hmm. so emotional. And Luke doesn't even have to be there for it to be emotional. He takes that helmet off and, mm-hmm. you know... Little Grogu puts his little claw up to his face, and <laughs> it got real emotional on our couch over there. I'm not going to lie. But that action sequence, is it just the moment I saw it, I was like, no, this is not for me. This, these, these couple minutes here, not my game. The gun jamming is terrible. I will agree with that. It's I real think bad, right? Ming-Na is amazing. I think Cara Dune was <laughs> wooden like she was in every other episode. And I think the gun jamming was just like prime. Like I was like, ugh, cringe. Yeah, cringe like at this said, acting right now. Just like you said, you were you you know he takes the jetpack off so that he cannot fly. The gun jams purely so that she can swing it and hit somebody in the head with the gun. Right. That's why right, they put right. that line in there. But when you look at it, you're like, come on, it's a blaster. <laughs> These things, nothing moves. It's got no moving <clears throat> parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 fair, and uh, you know. If you think about the Ant-Man movies, when you think about like even the the big climactic action scene in uh, Ant-Man, like what do you remember about that? You remember more the comedic parts of it. So yeah, I can see what you're saying. Is there even a big fight in that movie? 
I told yeah, there's the. Well, I mean, it's a little fight because they're miniature. Oh, uh-huh. so. <laughs> oh. Uh, sorry. But everybody, batch eight. <laughs> um, all right, so I think James, I think you're up for for your least favorite thing. Yeah, um, that to me, and and it's funny because uh, I've been looking at it the whole time, and I've been thinking, man, I probably should have rewatched the scene so I had a little bit more reference to it. But I remember when I thought of it, and I was like, oh yeah, that's the part that I hate, and I was just like, I don't, I don't want to rewatch it. Oh, no. <laughs> I was just, I just didn't like it, and it's kind of scattered throughout the episode too. Um, my pick is um, the fact that they they bully and and just pick on this mithril character in in episode four um and and in a weird way like my gut reaction to it is i don't like that character he sucks get him out of the show but it's not that it was actually the way our heroes treated him and i get that he's supposed to be like a scummy dude but he kind of doesn't play scummy. He plays innocently sympathetic, worried. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's like, he's like, uh, if you guys don't need me, I'm gonna get out of here. And it's kind of like, I guess that's cowardice. But he, but he doesn't seem like he's trying to put our heroes in danger or anything. He just seems like he just kind of doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to have anything to do with this. And he doesn't have anything to do with this. I'm not even really sure why he's there. So I kind of am on his side. But our heroes the whole time are just like, you suck. Do your job, you idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> like and, and I just felt like every time he spoke, like one of the people that we're supposed to like look up to just beat him down the whole time. And kept telling him to do stuff. And most of the time, the stuff that they told him even to do didn't even really pay off. You know, like mm. get this door open. Oh, never mind. Mandalorian can just fly us up or whatever. You know, just all this <laughs> dumb stuff. Like, I, I, no, I, I just that. felt he was very picked on for uh, unnecessary reasons. And I think the thing is supposed to be he's so pathetic that it's supposed to be funny. But I was just like, this yeah. is annoying. Well, yeah, they're, they're, I know like they, a, go ahead, John. Well, I was gonna say I know they were they were angry that he only covers '80s Billy Joel. I know that was a big factor for <laughs> for all of them. Um. Bottle of red. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no, a stepbrothers I, I, reference. I apologize. I apologize. I <laughs> I agree with that, James. I think I feel like he was supposed to come across, and I'm using this again because it's a good example, uh, like of a Peter Pettigrew, where you want to just hate him. Like, he's just the worst, like, ugh. But he just came across as like, hey, he's not that bad. Like, he hasn't done anything. Like, he's just kind of looking out yeah. for himself, which is what everyone in the show is doing. He's not putting yeah. anybody in danger, whereas, you know, a Peter Pettigrew from Harry Potter is more like, he's ruining everybody's lives. <laughs> like, yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's, comparison, because do we know what his original crime was? Right. Because he's, I, he's brought oh. in in the first episode, which this is kind of weird. You know, Grief Karga has this bounty for him, but it seems to be a, for a personal offense against him because now he's responsible yeah. for this person. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, that's not how the bounty hunting would normally work. It doesn't work in any other situation like that. Do we know what this guy's offense was? It was like, did, did they like not explain it? No, I don't, I don't think they did. 
because Mando I, basically I, says I can bring you in hot or bring you in cold, and he's like, "All right." Not in the going. first episode. In the beginning of this episode, where oh, he whoa. walks in and he's like, "He's like this guy works for you now," and he's like, "Yeah." And I think Griefcard kind of explains like, "Well, he stole some money from me and did this other thing, but now I've uh, now that he works for me, he's got fifty years to work off or whatever." Right. And then like they use that as currency for the rest of the episode, where he's like. If you do what I say, I'll give you 10 years off. No. How about 15? No. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like, it, it's it's annoying because I'm like, I, I just kind of don't care. Like, I, I wish this character just kind of wasn't in the scene because um, he's not C-3PO comic relief to me. Right. Yeah, that's fair. And also, like, they call him Mithril, which is his species is his race and they don't actually give him a name which i know is kind of the convention for uh, this show that's like tito yeah it's uh, just <laughs> nice tito is the race and the name of every tito yeah and it just it doesn't <laughs> so weird it's like yeah yeah it, it just doesn't work and it's like it to me it makes like it makes grief look bad like you work side by side with this guy every day and like you can't even say his name like you don't Oh, you know, like that. That's that's actually really weird that you say that too, because in rewatching some stuff today, I caught another instance of that of Cobb Vanth walking in and he says, "Weak way. How about some, yes. you know, the drink or whatever?" And I'm like, "There's like ten people in this town, and you're addressing him by his race." <laughs> like, then they show flashback scenes of this dude, and they're like best friends at the bar, like looking at each other, like things are about to change around here. And it's like you've known this dude for years, and you just refer to him as his general species. That's weird. Well, that's weird. Bib Fortuna does that in the little post credit sequence too. He leans over and says, "Weequay, come!" Like, and then uh, continues to speak in Huddies. It's like may- maybe it's a Star Warsy like chummy thing. It- I don't know. I was gonna go the for weak ways or something. Maybe there's some like underlying racial issues that these you know (laughs) it's possible not dealt with. You know, we know the Mon Calamari and Quarren have hated each other for hundreds of years, according to the High Republic. So, oh, and they're total scumbags. The Quarren, the Quarren Quarren are are are, they're against uh, wool knit sweaters, as far as I understand it. So. Really adding to this podcast, Sean. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, but right. I mean, we can wrap up. That that's my yeah. thing. Bullying Mithril, like it did not sit well with me. I'm gonna go well, back and rewatch that one now because that's interesting. <laughs> I had not even thought about that. For me, my number one is actually I'm gonna go to the Ahsoka episode, but it's not about Ahsoka. <laughs> uh, but the. In in this episode, Ahsoka tells Din that it would be better if uh, he let Grogu's abilities fade rather than to see him trained. And I like what this says to a, or what it shows us about Ahsoka and how you know her her past is influencing her present, her trauma, all of that stuff. But I am not, and I I'm not a fan of the idea that the Force can fade away from someone because I think it sets a really dangerous precedent. Um, Primarily because it implies, it, it implies that the will of the force is, it just it doesn't. The will of the force is not really a will. It's more of like a something you catch like a cold. Like somehow the force chooses someone, and then 
unchooses them when they aren't interacting with the force. And that opens up like questions to me of how long does it take for the force to fade? What level do you have to use the force? You know, and so the, why didn't Luke, you, you know, lose his force abilities for 19 years on Tatooine? You know, he didn't consciously use it. So do you have to consciously use it? Well, Grogu consciously used it. And so I, I don't know. I think it takes away, it, it sends us down a rabbit hole of the idea of like, well, what is, we already question what the will of the force is, but this goes a little too far into the, like, we have complete control over the force kind of thing. Whereas I've always read it more of a balance and the force chooses you for a reason. And if you don't fulfill that purpose in the way that the force expects you to, it'll adjust, but it it's not just going to say you're, unworthy because then why wouldn't it do that with people uh you know like vader or kylo ren who are doing terrible things for the galaxy when they were created to do good things for the galaxy you know so it's just i don't know it's a rabbit hole for me well that's a really interesting point i mean it, it reminds me of like a spiritual principle of where like you can be asked to do something like you can be put in a position to do good and you can actively choose to not and if you choose to not do what's asked of you so many times, you just stop getting asked. And that's kind of the impression that I got from that is like, but it didn't really make sense. I'm going to agree with you partially because he wasn't aware of what was going on. He's so young for his species. He wasn't able to make those decisions yet. He didn't even know what he was doing. Like to your point about Luke, he hadn't really engaged with the force. So there wasn't a chance for him to reject it. He hadn't had that opportunity, but I think that is kind of one of the reasons why at the end of The Last Jedi, it takes such a toll on him to dive back in because he's forgotten how to swim at that point. And so I think that's kind of what ultimately what does him in at the end. But I don't know about like what... That's an interesting point you bring up about what Ahsoka tells him about Grogu. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it's something they put there to show something about Ahsoka, which... I do like what it shows about Ahsoka, but what it says about the Force overall is just, it doesn't work for me. So I'm hoping this is just like a one-time thing that they just low-key don't mention again or anything like that because... Uh, like midi-chlorians who were mentioned one time and then never... Anyways, <laughs> anyways, uh, let's go ahead and get into the good stuff. Let's get into well, the top. Hang on, hang on, time out, time out. It, well, Ahsoka may have one of the more unique relationships with the Force anyway. She may understand it in a different way than, than the typical graduate of the Jedi Academy would too. Like, she's walked away from the Order. She had a chance to kind of turn her back on things and yet she remained kind of indwelt with the power of the force. She continued to use it, but walked away from a portion of it. I mean, there's pretty clear indications that the Jedi, even though the order of the prequels was not serving its real purpose, even Mace Windu says that their ability to sense the force has diminished in Attack of the Clones. Boom, Attack of the Clones reference. Like, so maybe it's not without, pre- it's not without precedence, Brandon. Yeah, that's fair, but... The the way it's presented here is that the Force is leaving Grogu, whereas in the prequels, it's Palpatine clouding the vision. It's not that they have less capacity, it's just that they're less capable to use the capacity. Maybe Ahsoka's afraid that Grogu will be clouded by the dark side, much like the, the Jedi of the prequels. That's completely fair, yeah. I mean, I, I could definitely... See. 
Yeah, Peace we've seen him do we we've seen him do aggressive things, so it's quite possible. There's That's definitely some dark side wrong. in it. Yeah. All right, let's get into the really good stuff. Our top three for season two, and uh, Drew, I'm going to let you take it first for your number three. Okay, um, I'm going to use the the passenger as my number three. Um, I really liked what this episode did overall, especially the way in which it it starts off how Grogu grows as a character throughout the entire series. Episode two starts us off showing up. He is a legit toddler. The dude is two years old and he does what he wants. He is an agent of chaos. He is not afraid to eat whatever he can grab. Everything he touches goes right in his mouth. That's how kids work. But episode three builds on that. And, and I remember, if you guys remember when The Passenger came out, there was a large conversation about how he was committing genocide, about eating the eggs of this, the, the frog lady, and, the, and she was the last of her brood, and there was no more without these eggs. And so while the episode plays it almost as a joke, there's a real question of the, the, the terrible, terrible harm, um, the generational harm he is causing. But in episode three, we see something different. At the very end, when Dejeron goes back to pick him up, because the, the, the frog parents have babysat him, he's playing with the little tadpole. And the parents are there, and they're kind of all working together, and he is no longer eating what he's touching. That is a big deal. And you don't get that payoff without setting up the conflict in episode two. So the mm-hmm. reason the passenger is very important is because if all you have is he plays with cute little things, you don't have that growth. And that growth is very, very important because at the end of episode of the eighth episode, if he doesn't have that growth, he stays within Dejeron. And that yeah. is a problem. And so there's this, this long game that they're playing through all the episodes and all the characters grow. And this is one of my favorite demonstrations because everyone wanted to know what the heck the point of that episode of the episode two really was going to be. And that's what it is. You can't look at it as just a self-contained little story when it plays out over the course of the next seven hours. Oh, it was so beautiful to see how that paid off to me. I absolutely loved it. Especially from season one where he's eating a full frog. Yeah. 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 That frog had a family. (laughs) it's, it's, It's almost like fans shouldn't react to the narrative of a show after the second episode of a season. It's like, you know, like you re- like say you're reading a book that has 25 chapters and after chapter four, you're like, this is where I'm going to give my opinion now. Yeah. I'm going to go online and be like, I can't believe they had him eating these eggs. Uh, you know, we even had Star Wars authors go on a rant about Jon Favreau be- uh, at- after chapter two. And it's like, and then things happened that they were asking for later in the season. It's like. You know, maybe just pipe down a little bit and see how this thing plays out, like you said. And, like, the passenger is, it, it might be, other than, like, the Ahsoka episode, obviously, uh, because Ahsoka. But, like, narratively, that might be my favorite episode because it does have so much meaning and metaphor underneath the surface. And that's why I was like, I... I y'all are overreacting about this when everybody was getting upset on the internet. I'm like, think about it symbolically. It's the symbolism of life and death because that's Mm -hmm. the process that this, they're going to be going through in this season is death and rebirth. And there's so much like, 
even in episode one, there's so much symbolism there of death and rebirth to like, if you just take a minute and, and think about it, you're like, oh, okay, this is what they're setting up. So then you see it again in season two and you see, or episode two, and you see it throughout the whole season to where you get to, to the end and you have just a conglomeration of death and rebirth in, you know, Din removing his helmet and being reborn to the person that he was before he was saved by death watch in a way grogu being reborn as somebody who now has some agency to make his own choices like there's so much there so yeah it's a yeah. passenger is a great episode yeah yeah so uh all right resistance broadcast what you got for your number three favorite thing uh i think i'm back um I, i'm gonna go with killing the crate dragon yes oh Nice, good pick. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think at the end of the season, I felt like I had to give, um, I had to give the final episode, like, you know, the, the best of score, like the highest score, because I, I felt like just, you know, what they did what, with the payoff there and all that. But for the longest time, um, this first episode was the, the best, um, and it's my number mm-hmm. two. Um, and I think uh, just if you're going to pick something from that episode, it's got to be the climax with the reasons that I loved it. In, in an odd way, the the first episode to me felt like almost, in a, this is strange, but like it almost felt like there was season one and then there was a, a one hour Mandalorian special between season one and two. And that was the first episode. <laughs> and then chapter two you know, the next chapter starts the, the season two is kind of how it felt. Cause that first, that first one was like a, a miniature movie. It was like a, a short film, but like full production. It was crazy. Like from start yeah. to end and, mm-hmm. and the, all that, I mean, it, it's part of the story, but in a weird way, it sort of, um, started and ended, uh, that storyline. I felt like it was an enclosed story, but getting specifically to, to my favorite part of it is, is the climax where they're, they're killing the crate dragon. Um, there, there's two very specific scenes, but it mostly revolves around Cobb Vanth and, uh, Din Djarin working together. So it's like these two Boba Fett Mandalorian style characters or whatever <laughs> flying around this thing, shooting at him, directing, uh, directing its its attention and firing missiles, and there's people getting eaten left and right, and you're like, the this thing's ratio, crazy. Ratio change was really cool too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah, and um, and just in general, like I think every Star Wars fan sitting there and and just going from up and down, like laughing as he. He says, I don't know what we're going to do. And he like hits Cobb Vance like jetpack and he goes flying <laughs> right. off. And then he's like, he's like, I got the detonator and the bombs are all in this Bantha. And like, we're all like, oh my God, the, he's going to, he's going to feed that <laughs> thing. Poor, poor that Bantha's, Bantha's like, please die. <laughs> yeah. It's trying to get away. We're all like, it's this so much I just emotional my conflict teeth. going Come on. on. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was one day um, and Bantha retirement. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, and, and then the, that whole thing goes down and, and, it, and in a weird way, it felt like kind of cliche, but so fresh to like have him be eaten and then like blow himself out of the mouth and stuff, you know, it's so cool. Yeah. Just, I, I think the way that, that all of it ended, um, I, I don't know, man, it, it felt like pretend the Mandalorian didn't exist and they just released that like in theaters. <laughs> I think people would have lost dude, their that's, mind. Dude, that's legitimate because... 
I, you know, I loved Game of Thrones and I got into Game of Thrones late in the game and that set the bar for live action television to the point where the Mandalorian wouldn't exist if the game if Game of Thrones didn't exist. And because yeah. the, the spectacle of the special effects that go into the Game of Thrones uh, episodes in terms of even the dragons and stuff like that looked so good. And it's it, it's a little it's close to theater, but you're like, eh, it's a little choppy. This the, the what Favreau did with this crate dragon thing, and and you know Favreau and all of ILM, Hal Hickle, the whole team, uh, is that set the bar? Like that is the bar right now. It is theater special effects. It is amazing what they did with yeah. that crate dragon, and and what they get into in terms of how they did full body even underneath the sand to make sure they got the ra- the the ratio and size of it right is just shows how much they care. And it's just, it, it makes you feel good as a Star Wars fan. Even though you don't see its belly, they still created it to make sure it moved the way it's supposed to. Unbelievable. Well, and so this actually is my number three, too. So uh, I'm very excited about it because I, I, I wow. 100% echo everything that you guys say. Um, this one was like one of the easier ones for me to pick as a favorite thing just because of the fact that through everything that happened in this season, I still go back and think about that episode so much um, because it's one where you you have those moments of humor and you can look at it, and this is when I think Star Wars is most effective, you can look at it as just a fun romp action adventure. You've got the comedy in there, but then you also have the really deep meaning. So like with the crate Dragon, you have a creature that buries and disguises itself like a Mandalorian does beneath his armor. You can try attacking him from the outside, but you can't break through the armor just like Beskar. Um, and it's not until, you know, James, like you mentioned, he goes inside of him when you go on an internal journey that he's able to achieve his goal and, and defeat the, uh, the crate Dragon. You know, he has to do it from the inside out, which is kind of a setup for the whole season. It's in, more of an internal journey where season one was more of an external journey of getting the child, protecting the child, all of those things. And here we get more of that internal journey. And this is kind of, to me, set me up and and I think set the season up for this idea of you've got to win from the inside out. So when you get to the final episode and, and they're fighting, they're trying to do everything they can, but they're basically dead to rights, he achieves his goal, Din achieves his goal of getting... Grogu to a Jedi by being selfless through love, through all those things that Star Wars teaches us about, not by wearing the armor and being a badass, you know? And yeah, I right, love that, that. That's kind of, to me, that's what kind of set it up. And so the fact that I could just, after, you know, five to eight hours, of, you know, whatever the total time of the season was, I still go back to that episode. I can't say the same thing for season one, you know? Like, I don't think mm-hmm. about the end fight mm-hmm. in season one in episode eight. So just powerful I also stuff. think about the the real obvious stuff with that episode too. Um, I'm very similar to John in the sense that growing up, uh, I grew up on the original trilogy. That's what I saw first. And then the prequels, obviously, like everybody else. But um, with Return of the Jedi, I never really got into Boba Fett because I felt like he just died a chump's death. Like he just, <laughs> he showed up, he's supposed to be this bad guy that brought Han Solo in and then he just dies this like ridiculous screaming, flying, hits the ship, falls in, the thing burps. It's like this chump death. You're like, okay, that guy's a joke. So it it's always kind of, I wouldn't, 
I guess I would say this. For a long time, I thought that he was overrated. I was like, okay, people really like him and I get that. But if you see what he did on screen, I don't know. I don't understand why people think he's like so awesome, right? Except that he looks cool. And I feel like this episode in particular, besides the excitement of him being back because you see him on screen, it explained how he got out. Because for a long time, people were like, oh, he got out. And you're like, how? How is that possible that he got out? And this one, they were like, first of all, the acid, like, spit that the dragon does caught me off guard so fast in this episode. I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) cool. But then he gets swallowed, and you're like, okay, but the acid. And then he comes out, and he's covered, but he's perfectly fine with the armor on. It gives you the explanation of, like, oh, okay, that makes sense now, how he got out. Because the armor protected him. That acid spit reminded me of like uh, the new, the latest Godzilla. Where yes, like yeah, you yeah. watch the movie and you're like, oh, I know he has the fire breathing, whatever, but you like forget about it until he like rips the monster's mouth open and like blows it <laughs> yeah. down his throat. You're like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. But yeah, I, it was like that cool stuff that I was then like, all right, okay, I'm on board with this. And then of course, when we see the Robert Rodriguez episode, you're like, oh, this is the coolest character I've ever seen. And you, you yeah. made me think of uh, when he right before he just kind of goes for it and he tells. I think it was Cobb Vanth. He goes, "Yeah, take care of the take care of the kid." Like yeah. that is such a yeah. such a subtle line that we miss, and it's just like he doesn't want to say like, "Oh my God, I love him. Please take care of him." He just like <laughs> he wants to say it quick so he doesn't start crying under his little Mando helmet. He's just like, "Take care of the kid." I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a great episode. Excellent, excellent stuff. All right, Drew, let's circle back around to you and your number two favorite thing from this season. All right, uh, number two. Number two is the 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 uh, mm, mm, the lunch table scene in the Believer. Oh, so good! That fifth, like ten minute sequence where you know Dejaren takes off his helmet for like the first time in front of people ever is a monumental thing for him as a character and the implications that it has are mind-boggling for me um this was the only 10 minutes of the entire season that inspired me to go instantly write like three thousand words and and send an, an article to brandon probably i think before the day was over yeah um it is so important because he is at this moment where his faith in the code of the way is challenged like it's never been challenged before. He has to make a decision in the moment whether he's willing to put it all on the line and turn his and essentially turn his back on the people who saved his life when he was a child and why for this tiny little green Muppet. And it's amazing because then he has to sit down and have a conversation with people who have guns all around him and he doesn't know what to do. He's so out of his element and he's not prepared for anything that's coming his way. He has to let Mayfield take control of the conversation because he knows what he's doing, more or less. And he's sitting there in this moment of tension and has no idea what's going to happen. But no matter how he gets out of it, he can never be the same again. He can never go back to the people that were his family. He can really never... He, he doesn't feel like he can call himself a member of that clan anymore because he has violated their most basic and easy-to-follow tenet. Don't take your helmet off in front of other people. That's it. And everything is thrown into chaos for him. And, and there's a bit of that like in the, in the next couple episodes, like in those moments where he goes all in and he's willing to do it now. He sees that it's kind of... When he's following this path of, of, of tenderness and care for the child, when he can recognize that, 
this is the end goal is taking care of this other person. He's willing to take his passcode and say, thank you for what you've done for me, but I'm ready to move on. And it's just this very moving moment. And, and, and I'm a sucker for these kind of moments in, in, in a person's life in their personal journey that says, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm scared because that's when I think the, the real quality of a, of the person's humanity shines through. They've got that chance to say, what am I going to do? Do I retreat and say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And he has to abandon the child or is he going to persevere in the unknown and step out in faith and say, I don't know what the right answer is, but I think so long as I act in service of this other person, this child, and take care of them, it can't all be that bad. I almost cried at the end of this episode because it's just a, an amazing turning point in this character's life, and we get to sit there and watch it unfold. It, it, it moved me. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, Bill and Bill Burr, like, who would have thought when you, like, in 2003, you see him as a the side character on the Chappelle show that he would be able to deliver these types of performances. Like he's John, and even John, not your pick watch. yet, John. Oh yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Well, but there's also, there's really something to be said about the fact uh, that Mando takes the helmet off without a second thought. Like mm-hmm. yeah. there is mm-hmm. most, most directors too. Yes. He's, you can tell he's nervous. And not just for his own per- like safety in the moment of like what happens if I get shot in the face, like it's it's all internal, it's all personal, it's all self doubt. And, and but most directors would play that with the helmet on though. Most, they would have mm-hmm. them, you know, almost take it off, not quite sure, and take it off yeah, at the very last point. second. Good point. Whereas here, he rips it off. Like yes, he's scared. He's basically going back to being a child. You know, <laughs> um, he is more vulnerable than he's ever been since he was a child. But removing that helmet and giving up that way for the one person in the galaxy that he loves unconditionally is not even a question. And to me, that's, that's Star Wars right there. And, and to your point, like Mayfield, who, who goes into this episode like very cynical and, you know, oh, everybody's just out for themselves. Even he comes around and realizes he has his own sense of morality that he has to cling to, which is why he has to gun down the other guy at the table because of how, when faced with that pure evil, he can no longer allow it to, uh, to exist in the same room. But when he, he, he turns to the chair and says, hey, I never saw your face, don't worry about it. He gives him that option to turn back and like to hide that. Like, that's a moment of tenderness you don't expect from a guy like like Bill Burr would play. It's unbelievable. It's so good. So good. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great moment. It's a great moment. All right. Resistance broadcast. What do you got at your number two? So John kind of gave a hint to our number two. Well, my Sorry. number two. Uh, no, cause they just did two. You guys were already talking about it. Um, first I want to say that Luke Skywalker is my ultimate favorite moment, but I felt like it was kind of an obvious choice. I feel like everybody had that emotional reaction. So I picked one that stood out to me as like the best scene of the series away from Luke. (laughs) So it was Bill Burr and it was the scene that he has where he kind of questions everything the Imperial people stand for and what they're about and questions him. And 
I am a huge Bill Burr fan. I've been a fan of his for a very long time. He's one of my favorite comedians. And I remember him talking about being in The Mandalorian and saying how, like, Favreau basically was like, hey, you want to be in the show? And he was like, people would hate me in this show. And he was like, no, just do it. And so he did it. And, like, even today, he's getting criticism for having a Boston accent on the show. And he's like, really? You're going to criticize me when Han Solo talks to Bigfoot? But, yeah, okay, cool. The Boston accent is too much, you know? But this scene with him and what you had just said about the Mandalorian and, and how awesome Pedro Pascal is, Bill Burr shines in this episode from start to finish, and I didn't expect that from him. And I know that he's been in a lot of more serious pieces that he's really good, and obviously he does his own show, F is for Family, which is hilarious. But there was such a moment in that scene that, like, it gave me chills when he realizes even when he thought he wasn't doing anything serious by driving that tank there with all the fuel and everything. And he was just like, Oh, I'm just here to do this. And then I'm out. And he doesn't, he realizes what a big difference one person can make and the choices that we make determine bigger decisions and bigger repercussions in the bigger picture. And I felt I don't know, that the whole scene with him, how he acted it, the, the little head nods that he does, the moments that he kind of looks down and looks back up and he makes yeah. that that decision that he's like, you know what, I'm going to kill this guy. And it was just perfect. And I hope that he gets the Emmy guest starring nomination because he oh, absolutely wow, yeah. 100% deserves it because I think out of all the scenes with the exception of Luke Skywalker – his monologue scene was the scene I watched the most over and over and over again. I showed it to people. I showed it to my husband. I was like, you have to see this. Like, it was just that good that it, I, oh, it's just shocking how good it was. And it's my favorite scene of the series of the, I would say of the series, actually one of the favorite of the Mandalorian, but of definitely of season two. That is so fantastic. How did you, did you feel the same kind of way? Like in universe stuff came up, like he mentions operation cinder. And that was like the first time I think that name really meant anything to anybody. And yeah, so there was definitely the moments that. that you're like, oh, he's part of the, you know, look at these little ties that they're bringing in from other stuff, which is always cool. Um, I, I like when they do callbacks here and there to stuff that you feel like super smart as a Star Wars fan. You're like, I know exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> um, but more than that, it was just the mannerisms that he delivered in that scene and and how well he played that scene. And, and it was, like I said, I just got chills. I was like, he is so good. Who knew? But I guess, you know, they always say that comedians and people that are over-the-top funny usually are able to tap into emotion more than probably someone that plays it serious all the time. So um, mm. good for him, and I can't wait to see. I really, really hope he's in Rangers of the New Republic because he just he killed it. Yeah. He, I mean, just the fact that, like, Star Wars is a place where you can have action scenes and then you can also have the opera house and you can have this mm -hmm. moment, you know, mm -hmm. where people are just sitting and talking and you're like, just captivated is, uh, is it's pretty cool. And this is going to be one of those moments that's up there in the, the pantheon of like great, just two characters talking, but you care so much about what's going on because of the way they're presenting it. It's, it's, and really, even the really cutaways good. to Mando are just perfect too. The way he's like oh, kind of looking yes. at the table and then looking at him and looking at the table. Um, like, but yeah, everything it, John said it, before was right. <laughs> I was just giving him a hard time. <laughs> um, so for me, my number two is, uh, it's the, 
moment when Bo-Katan reaches down to save Din uh, in the same way that the Death Watch trooper did uh, when he was a kid. This one just just really gets oh. me. Uh, going back to that idea, like I was mentioning earlier, about the uh, life and death and birth symbolism, like this is coming out of the water, Din is being reborn, uh, and you get that right before he meets a new kind of Mandalorian. Uh, it's it's To me, it's just really powerful. Um, and then it also kind of links to the the hands symbolically at the end with uh, Grogu reaching and not touching the face of a Mandalorian but touching the face of a man uh, touching the face of you know somebody who has been reborn and and to me Din has kind of by the end of the season he's become what he was trying to become by being mm-hmm. a Mandalorian you know trying to find that purpose and stuff like that not not to say that him being a Mandalorian doesn't have a place because I think it does, but just breaking through that barrier of the helmet and and the fact that he literally, you know, gets baptized by trial uh, right before Bo-Katan saves him uh, is, is just really cool to me. And uh, it's also just really cool having Bo-Katan in the, in the series. And so <laughs> to have an introduction like this, that's not just instantly you sit up and go, Oh, that's Bo-Katan. But you also have a, a lot of powerful symbolism going on. There is, um, it's something that's really cool. So I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. So, all right, let's get into our top things and drew, I'm going to send it to you. Okay. So I agree with Lacey. We kind of had to set aside Luke because it's Luke. It's fantastic. I had right. Aside, everyone agrees. I, yeah. <laughs> I had to set aside Ahsoka showing up because it was really cool. It was a lot of fun. Um, my number one, my favorite thing out of this whole show is Tamora Morrison um, as Boba Fett. Every time he was on screen, it was awesome. Nice. Um, everything he did, every action he took and every shot he shot and line he read, it was so much fun. Um, I was one of those guys. Who, I've loved Boba Fett for a long time um, without a whole lot of good reason why. And it's so nice to have something on the screen you can point <laughs> to and say, this, this is the guy we all wanted to be like. This is the reason we all you know, <laughs> drew the helmets in our notebooks in eighth grade. And it was just, oh, it's so much fun. If nothing else, <laughs> Star Wars should always just be fun. And those moments, like we mentioned earlier, like he blows up the ship and he turns and looks at the, at the camera. The guitar riff goes off and you're just like, this is amazing. Oh, it, it, <laughs> it, it tickled me in all the right places. It was so fantastic. Oh, it, that's it. Just yeah, every time there, Boba Fett was on screen, I was like, "Yes, more, more." There's a certain more. like rawness to how Rodriguez brought that, and I liked that they focused on him talking about it in the gallery for the few minutes yes. that he did, where he kind of said, "I don't know what the future is for this character," um, and he probably said that as they were recording it way back when. Obviously, he's involved with the Book of Boba Fett, but he's like. I need to make sure we deliver him now because I don't know what the future is and he needs his moment. So knowing mm-hmm, that he went mm-hmm. into that with that mentality and oh. did an old school on location, really awkward high noon sunset or sun well, sunlight shoot, uh, like out of your backyard type of thing. And people like kind of poked fun at it. But then when you listen to him explain it, you're like, he is way smarter than all of us. Uh, so we Absolutely. need to stop. So we need to shut up and let the guy make his thing. And, and boy, did he. <laughs> yeah, the shot where it comes from the stormtroopers kind of POV and then he's behind them and it shoots up oh. to him on like kind of like a Dutch angle shot and then he slaps him. Oh my God, <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> 
I've played. That's another shot that I played over. I was like, the cut is so clean here. The cut between these two shots. And even like the moments like before he even goes and gets his armor when he's still kind of wearing like the Tuscan Raider garb and he's got the gaffy stick. Yeah. And the one where uh, the camera's looking up at the ground and he's got this this menacing look on his face. Yeah. Swings the thing and his helmet, the stormtrooper helmet explodes. Explodes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh. Oh, so good. You guys better go because I'm not. We ha- I know you guys have time <laughs> issues, and I want to be respectful no. of your time. But Boba Fett. <laughs> but well, and also, th- if you think about the fact that, like, after that episode, the people who were like, like Lacey and me, who were like, why is everybody obsessed with Boba yeah, Fett? He doesn't uh. do anything. <laughs> Nobody was going, yeah, but everybody was like, nah, respect. Like, yeah, you know, goat. Like, it, it, there was no trying to make excuses for why he wasn't, you know, awesome. It was just like, sure. No, you guys, we get it. We get it. Yeah. So we got that, was, it. that was really cool. <laughs> so, all right, John, what do you got for your favorite thing for season two of Mandalorian? Um, my favorite thing is, uh, the moment between Din and Grogu in the rescue, uh, at the end, uh, we touched on it a little Perfect, bit before. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, because, um, I've always, um, just as a son, you know, I've always, uh, took to and got emotional with like the father son moments in movies like Field of Dreams, Dad, you want to have a catch, um, that sort of stuff. Like, always got me. And th- now that I'm a dad, um, seeing him take the helmet off and saying, like, don't be afraid, like that choked oh. me up. And then him putting him down, uh, and and instead of handing him to Luke, he put him down and let him make the choice so he could see him wanting to voluntarily do it was, I think, a very genius move by Peyton Reed or Favreau, whoever put that in the... Whether it was in the pages or they directed it that way, I think that was important. Instead of him handing him over, him putting him on the ground and making him make the walk himself. Yes. Um, yes. And you know that relationship is so powerful when you see Grogu being taken away by Luke Skywalker, the hero of all heroes, and you're like, no, don't don't take him. <laughs> don't take him yeah. away. So <laughs> right. that, that that alone right there just tells you all you need to know about how Favreau wrote and created a bond between these two that is up there on the tops for Star Wars in terms of connecting two characters. So there's not much else I need to say about that. Uh, an absolutely powerful moment. Maybe one of the most emotional um getting getting emotions out of me moments that i've seen in star wars in a really long time like yes. han and ben that was yes that, was that too that was yeah exactly yeah. yeah well and this is actually my number one too um and and oh nice yeah you think about the fact that like you have luke skywalker returning with the green lightsaber <laughs> and on a dime you're able to successfully <laughs> shift to these two characters that we've only known for a couple years and completely have us forget who Luke Skywalker even is. Mm-hmm. That is just mm-hmm. peak, peak storytelling. And like for me, what I love most about this, you know, John, you talked about it, you know, being the father son connection for you. For me, it's the connections to the other things in Star Wars. You know, you have the the removing the helmet, but this time it's the the son asking the father to remove it. Um, right. You know, I. I did a whole article, uh, which I'll link in the show notes, on Anakin leaving Shmi and how that is is similar to what right. we have here. Yeah. Uh, you know, yep. th- this this selfless act and and the question I think that it leads uh, leads to you know is is something that Anakin had to deal with is are your abilities and your talents and the prodigy that you have worth sacrificing 
a relationship with the one person who has ever unconditionally loved you. And that's something that I think Grogu is going to have to, uh, you know, find an answer to hopefully before uh, Anakin uh, found that answer to it. But (laughs) I like that they they played it with very clear illusions, but they put it, they put twists on it to where we don't know what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. and so yep. we could we'll sit here and, and we're going to sit here for, you know, over a year and contemplate, okay, what's gonna happen with them, what's gonna happen with them. And it's you know, I like to stick with what the text shows us and this is what the text showed us, but there's so many twists on it at different angles, you don't know which way to read it. So to me that's right. really cool because it's very clear what they're trying to achieve. Uh, it's very clear that they are ending this part of the story and setting up the future part of the story. Uh, it's very clear that they are connecting it with the larger narrative of star Wars, both in, in terms of the, the moving the story along and uh, thematically, but you also don't know what's going to happen. And to me, that's a really satisfying way to end the season because if the show ended right here, uh, you know, while it would be a letdown that we're not getting more Mandalorian, this would be one of those Star Wars things where it'd be really cool to try to figure out what happened next for the rest of our lives, you know. So, uh, mm-hmm. very powerful moment at the end. And uh, yeah, if you want, if you want more of that, of course, uh, you know, guys, you you all are covering it uh, a lot over there. Uh, Mando fan show and all that stuff wrapped up over on the Resistance <laughs> yeah. broadcast. So um, I'm still a little bit behind, but I'm catching up on episodes um, on, the, <laughs> Thanks, on that man. one. And, uh, and of course, we've got it covered on here. We got stuff on the website, all of that. Mando is going to be everywhere. So just uh, make sure you, you stay tuned and I'm sure we'll have more content coming out there. But if they want to, uh, if listeners want to get more of the Resistance broadcast and uh, interact with you guys online, where can they find you at? Um, I mean, we are found on all podcast apps, so wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we have a video version of our show on youtube.com slash, slash Star Wars Newsnet videos, because we are the podcast for StarWarsNewsNet.com, uh, Twitter at R-B-A-T-S-W-N-N, and Instagram at The Resistance Broadcast. Uh, did I get them all? You did. Good job. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> you can you find us go. on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, Facebook. Yeah, we are on Facebook, too. Yeah, the Resistance Broadcast. And uh, hashtag Make Solo 2 Happen. We want to get that out there to your oh, listeners, dear. too. Okay. Oh, well. yeah. Hey, I have a solo phone case on right now, so I'm with you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Ignore Drew. Ignore there Drew. It is. Uh, Drew who? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Wow. He talked down about the Ahsoka episode, so he's not going to be back anyway, so it's fine. Uh, I'll be submitting my applications as co host. <laughs> well, if you want to see more of Drew, uh, you can find him at the Drew Brett, right? On Twitter? That's me. On the, uh, Twitter, uh, at the Drew Brett. That's me. And uh, you're always really good about remembering to post in our Facebook group, which is a really awesome community over there uh, Clashing Sabres, Star Wars. And uh, Twitter, Clashing Sabers, Instagram, all of that good stuff. All of those links and all of our personal links will be in the show notes, and you can just click that. But most importantly, click on that link for go.rallyup to help us uh, cross yes. that $1,000 barrier. More books for and kids. More books for kids. Like I said, 100%, like literally every penny goes to buying the books and sending the books. And so, uh, you know, this is speaking as a teacher, but also, you know, coming from a family of teachers is a really hard time on teachers. It's a really hard time on students. So if we could just spread a little bit of that light that star Wars gives to us, you know, every day that makes us want to come on these podcasts. Um, and, and who knows, maybe we, you know, get the book that gets, you know, 
the person uh, into reading could be something really, really special. So help us out with that. And it doesn't hurt that you also could win some really cool stuff. So if you want more Clashing Sabres, just click that subscribe button and we will be here. But before we go, we want to make sure you take away the most important message of Star Wars, which is Batch 8. Hi-ho. There we go. See, it's so much easier with just you and me, Drew. We don't have anybody. Bless you. Oh, yeah. You're so cute. (laughs) The podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabres productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabres.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it. It's ours. They made it. It's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabresNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.